This is Rising Up with Sonali, and I'm your host, Sonali Kolhatkar. You can watch this program on Free Speech TV and listen to it on community and independent radio stations nationwide. President Joe Biden on Monday said in a phone conversation with Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu that he expressed his support for a ceasefire. Israeli airstrikes have killed hundreds of Palestinians, including dozens of children in just two weeks, in a conflict that began over Jewish settlers trying to seize Palestinian homes in East Jerusalem. Israel has bombed densely populated areas of Gaza, including destroying a building that housed the offices of Al Jazeera and Associated Press. Mr. Biden's cautious support for a ceasefire is the furthest he's gone so far in expressing discomfort over the violence. Considering that Israel is the largest recipient of U.S. military aid, a growing chorus of elected officials are demanding that Israel be held accountable. A week before Israel began attacking Palestinians, Congress was notified of a $735 million weapons deal finalized between the Biden administration and Netanyahu's government. Israeli violence is not relegated to the state anymore as ordinary Israelis have taken to marching in the streets, chanting death to Arabs and engaging in assaults and lynchings. Hamas, the militant Palestinian group, has lobbed dozens of rockets into Israel, Western media coverage of which has eclipsed Israel's crimes. My guest is Sari Makdisi, a professor of English and Comparative Literature at UCLA. He recently wrote the piece, The Nakba is Now, for The Nation magazine. Welcome to the program, Professor Makdisi. A pleasure to be here. So let's first talk about the broad issue of how the United States enables Israel's wars on Palestinian. Um, the Congressional Research Service points out that the United States uh, gives, or Israel rather, is the largest cumulative recipient of foreign assistance from the U.S. since World War II. The U.S. enters these 10-year agreements to the tunes of billions of dollars of aid to Israel, which is essentially unconditional. Is that to you, for especially American audiences, the single most important thing we should think about when we look at the carnage of Palestinians? That's one of the most important things, because obviously by the U.S. endlessly supplying the Israelis with the weapons that they're using to blow up Palestinian apartment buildings in Gaza or medic medical centers or schools as they're planning to do this week, it obviously makes the U.S. complicit. I mean, it's the, the Israelis literally materially couldn't do what they're doing without the supply of weapons that comes from the U.S. So in that sense, that's that's one of the most important things for sure. Another really important thing is that the U.S. gives them political cover as well as military and financial support. And yeah, you know, to American an American audience might wonder why are we giving these guys hundreds of billions of dollars over this period when we could use that money here in the U.S. I mean, there are, there are cities in the U.S. that desperately need investments in infrastructure. Michigan, for example, Michigan City certainly come to mind. Detroit comes to mind. Flint comes to mind. Why are we spending money on somebody else's war of aggression when we have desperate needs uh, here at home in the U.S.? That's, that's a legitimate question that every American should be asking uh, him or herself, I think. So recently, Israel bombed the offices of uh, uh, AP, Associated Press, and Al Jazeera, the building that housed those offices. Secretary of State Antony Blinken said he has asked the Israeli authorities, the government, to show proof that there was a connection with Hamas, because that's, of course, the standard Israeli justification. So far, he has said the Israeli government has not responded. But Israel doesn't 
really have much incentive to respond to the U.S., does it? I mean, if no. the aid is unconditional, it can just stay silent and, and not worry about the aid being cut off, right? Yeah, I mean, well, actually, I want to come back to the term unconditional in a second. Mm -hmm. so there's, there's an important caveat in that. But yes, it's true that they could just tell the, tell the U.S. to fly a kite, basically, and, and the U.S. would go on supplying the weapons and the political support kind of irrespective. Um, and it's really, really important to note the constant Israeli refrain, not just this time, but in all of its bombardments of Gaza or other areas of Palestine in the, in the West Bank in the early 2000s, similar kind of thing, was that, that the other guys are using human shields. There has never, ever been uh, evidence of Palestinian groups using human shields in the way that the Israelis consistently claim. And given that the Israelis have all this wonderful surveillance equipment and 24-hour drone and other kind of surveillance footage from Gaza, etc., we would expect at least some modicum of evidence. There is zero evidence. And, and what they do, for example, is they did this the other day, actually, on, on, on the internet, is they, they said, oh, here's footage of a, a rocket launcher in between, you know, civilian apartment buildings. And he, he, so this is the kind of thing we're trying to hit is these rocket launchers hiding between buildings. Yeah, but it turns out that that was taken in Syria in like 2016 or something like that. It has nothing to do with, with Palestine or with Palestinians. Well, we, part of what needs to be bracketed here is the, the absence of evidence. Another part that needs to be bracketed is the general Israeli plus often versions of an American you know, narrative of support for this is that these people are barbarians and they're infidels and they're monsters and they're inhuman and so on and so forth. They're all terrorists, et cetera. But these, are, these people are defending their mothers and brothers and children and uncles and aunts and grandfathers and so forth. Would you use your grandparent as a human shield if you're trying to defend them or your child or your mother? Of course you wouldn't. Mm. But to come back to the question you were asking a minute ago about unconditional, so what's interesting is that U.S. aid to the Israelis, specifically military aid, it's, you might say, politically unconditional. It is not, however, legally unconditional. When the U.S. supplies weapons, as they do to the Israelis, including the, the huge bombs they're using to blow up whole you know, residences in, in Gaza, there are stipulations in American law governing the export of weapons. They're not to be used against civilian targets. Obviously, they're not supposed to be used for war crimes and so on. And yet they are consistently. So by letting this go on, by encouraging uh, the Israelis to do what they're doing, as, Bi as the Biden administration certainly has been doing, it is arguably, I mean, I'm not a lawyer, but it's arguably in violation, it stands in violation of its own legal requirements, you know, in terms of US law, never mind international law, international humanitarian law, the Geneva Convention, and so forth, all of which also it's in, it's in grotesque violation of. But it's a really important point. It's not quite literally unconditional. It's, it's marginally unconditional, but there are these really, really important legal stipulations that of course are flouted and ignored all the time. And very few people bring them up by way of objection. And, and I imagine that that is the um, line against which some newer members of Congress are now demanding that the U.S. hold Israel accountable by Rashida Tlaib, Ilhan Omar, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, saying that we do need, and even Senator Bernie Sanders has spoken out, we do, we do need to hold Israel accountable. Hold it to the same standard we would hold any other nation, right? Yes, hold it accountable to the same standard, but also hold ourselves accountable for selling these guys weapons that are in violation of our own arms export control regulations, right? So in other words, the US is also violating the laws, not just the Israelis. They're violating international human, international human uh, humanitarian law. That's clearly what's going on with them. We, the US, are violating our own legal system by, by continuing to export weapons under circumstances in which they're being used clearly in violation of 
the stipulations under which they were exported in the first place. And that's that's a really important point. And yes, that is being brought up. It's being brought up by a number of uh, people in the, particularly in the U.S. House of Representatives. I think to a lesser extent in the Senate. Um, and there are there are people now really beginning to raise you know raise eyebrows and more legal, like you raise beginning to raise legal stipulations around trying to rein in Israel's use of violence and to and to kind of institute American controls over this because as I said ultimately the U.S. is accountable the U.S. is complicit the U.S. is a partner in this as it has been in all of Israel's adventures going back you know to 2006 and Lebanon for example the U.S. was very much on the forefront of continuing to push them to keep to keep their attack. Invasion of Lebanon going and again Gaza 2014, Gaza 20, 2008 and 9 and, and so on and so on. But yes, that, that is definitely what's in the conversation these days too. Incidentally, I'm not sure if you saw the tweet on Monday by the Israeli Foreign Ministry that sent out two back-to-back -back tweets of what looked like fighter jet emojis just, uh, you know, lines and lines of fighter jet emojis. We'll put the image up on our screen for our TV audience. And it was just quite remarkable. No words, just these emojis that just showed such impunity. Um, one of my colleagues, Arun Gupta, has referred to Israel's tactic that it has um, named mowing the grass when it comes to uh, fighting in Gaza and its, its attack on Gaza. Uh, Gupta calls it the language of genocide how do you feel about that i mean it's true and you know again i'm not a legal expert but i mean this this attempt first of all you have to remember it's not just that they're bombing gaza they've had gaza under siege for for 16 or 17 years at this point gaza is completely encircled everything that goes into or out of gaza including things that have to do with the population registry itself are is controlled ultimately by the israelis so all imports all exports are subject to Israeli interdiction, and they've they've on at different moments. For example, there was a moment a few it was like maybe ten years ago or so they instituted a, a regime where they were, what they were trying to do was to calculate. Okay, Gaza grows X number of calories. The population is X number of people. Uh, they need X, and so what they're trying to do is to figure out. Okay, well if we let this 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 many calories into the into the Gaza Strip. That'll keep the population like they're not going to die of starvation, but they're not. But they're going to be kind of teetering at the edge of starvation. These are minutely calculated forms of damage that are being done to an entire population. And by the way, also important to remember, a population the majority of which are under eighteen. In other words, this is mostly population of children. They're a population of children whose schools are being bombed, who have no proper air raid shelters, who have nowhere. And by the way, the, another thing is that normally when hostilities like this take place civilians can flee like at least you can pick up and run away if nothing else you can't flee from gaza the whole place is a giant prison the israelis hold the the key to the gate so they're not letting anybody out and they're bombing it relentlessly and and it's one of the most densely populated places on earth and it's been under siege for all these years put all that together whether it's technically genocidal or not it's certainly quasi-genocidal and the way in which they talk about it for example they, they've often said when they were shooting people at protesting in the you know a couple of years ago at the uh, along the, the the fence that the israelis had built to separate gaza from from pre-67 palestine they they at one point one of their one of their ministry people came out and said yeah we have enough bullets for every man woman and child in gaza for this event, Netanyahu himself has said repeatedly, "We want we're going to keep bombing until it's quiet." I'm like, when you use language like that, it is the the language clearly is itself murderous in some way. There's an intent to murder, to exterminate, to 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 annihilate if that's what it takes. 
And, you know, I don't know if you want to ask about this or not, but at some point we have to also zoom out and ask, well, what is it exactly that the Israelis are trying to accomplish here? Because, you know, states use violence, you know, whether we like it or not, they use violence. They always have used violence. But usually when a state uses violence, it's connected to some kind of political strategy. I mean, like war, as I think it was Clausewitz famously said, war is the continuation of politics by other means. But you have to ask, well, what exactly is the strategy they're trying to, you know, that they're trying to, 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 to reach in this kind of, like, what is the target? What is the objective of this, of this you know, relentless bombardment? Because they've done it before. It's like they've not like this is the first time that they've tried to do this kind of thing. Yeah, it feels and, like I do the same interview every few years. But this is the point. So then you just say, well, what do you what is it you guys are trying to do? What do you what do you think is going to happen when you when you kill hundreds of people, most of them children, you demolish buildings, you, you reduce the population to even more is immiseration on top of yet yet more years of accumulated that you know artificially produced misery and poverty and miseration and and now on top of it coronavirus and so forth. What exactly are you trying to accomplish here? If you're trying to break the will of the Palestinian people, it's not you've been trying that for 70 years. It's not gonna happen. But what is it you're trying to do? And honestly, my answer to the question is, I mean, on their behalf, I think they have no idea what they're doing. I think, and I think this is something that, that has been true of the Israelis for a long time. They are excellent. They are brilliant at blowing up buildings and killing people. But merely blowing up buildings and killing people does not translate into the attainment of political objectives. Which and is what, yet what we are told here in the United States is that we support Israel with billions of US dollars because it is the Middle East's only democracy. And of course, all of the coverage, the media coverage is um, continually fixated on Hamas as if the media is trying to convince its readers, you know, in, in such an obviously biased way that it's only because Hamas is attacking Israel. That's that Israel is, so, you know, supposedly standing up for itself and defending itself. Everything Israel is doing is cast as a form of self-defense against yeah. Hamas because that's what the media is telling us that we have to think. Yeah, of course. Because the media suddenly pays attention when there's when there's large scale bombardment. Like suddenly, oh, look, look what's happening over there. Oh, what's happening? Oh, the Israelis are responding to Hamas rockets. Yes, but that depends on when you start when you start the timer, right? If you back up a little bit, what was happening in Jerusalem and Sheikh Sharrah, yeah. a, a Palestinian area in e occupied East Jerusalem, was that the Israelis were trying to evict uh, uh, several Palestinian families from homes that they've been living in since nineteen since the since the ethnic cleansing of nineteen forty eight, and this is something that happens routinely. And there, and protests started then. It was those protests in Sheikh Sharrah that led that spread in effect to the rest of East Jerusalem which led the Israelis to try to suppress the protest by any means necessary, which led to their assault on the on the great mosques of, of, of Jerusalem, which is what you see. So it depends on when you start the timing. And of course, even, even if you say, well, it was peace and quiet before this whole current round of, of, of escalation began, you're talking about, as I said, Gaza itself, since 2006, that territory has been under siege, right? So that's, you know, how many years, I can't even do the math, of people living under, in a desperate sort of quasi-medieval siege where everything is cut off from the outside world. People, an entire generation has grown up in Gaza that have never been able to leave the gates of the prison. I mean, imagine that, an entire population, again, mostly children, who are not able to go out. They can't go out, they can't travel, they can't see the world, they can't go to Jerusalem, they can't go, they can't go to, to their relatives living in other parts of Palestine and so forth. Um, and then in the West Bank, again, home demolition and curfew and interdiction and roadblocks and checkpoints it is they are they are what they're trying to do is to reduce an entire population of millions of people to this 
completely unacceptable inhuman form of existence. And they're surprised when people, when, when, the, when those living under these circumstances erupt. And of course the media then. will simply, the corporate media especially, will simply not give that context. No. Uh, now Hamas rockets are considered acts of terrorism because they have poor aim and they're not sophisticated. So when they, uh, it, you know, toss them into Israel, they, they're in forms of indiscriminate terror, so on, so-called. But Israel's massive firepower is more accurately able to reach targets. So apparently it's not terrorism for that reason, even though they're very clearly aiming at civilian structures. Yeah. Clearly, I mean, the, you know, the, there's the, the the disparity between the two sides in this particular case is it's absurd. I mean, it's essentially homemade artisanal rockets versus the large scale demolition that only a modern air force is capable of, of delivering. I mean, provided by the US, bombs, US tax provided dollar. by the US, the, the, the airplanes provided by the US, the weapons themselves, the bombs, the munitions, the guidance system, all that is provided, you know, carte blanche by the US. So there's no obviously there's no comparison to be made in terms of what the, the the damage that each side is capable of is in, of inflicting on the other that goes without saying but what's interesting about this particular moment and i wrote about it in a piece recently for the nation is 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 that the the clash now or the clashes or the confrontations are now no longer simply between hamas and and the israeli armed forces but also between uh, ordinary israeli citizens taking the law in effect into their own hands vigilante style inside pre-67 Palestine, and of course in the occupied territories, East Jerusalem and the West Bank, and basically lynching Palestinian citizens of the state, attacking their houses, trying to trying to burst into their apartments, smashing up their shops. And there were, there, I understand there were protests mar or marches rather by Israelis chanting death to Arabs. Death, yeah, I mean, amazing is, that the corporate media didn't have front page headlines on this. Them. Imagine if Palestinians were marching yeah. through the streets saying, yeah. street saying death to Israelis. We would, or death to the Jews. We would definitely hear about mm -hmm. that for sure, right? And but yeah, but that's that's again, it's all sort of part of the background in this case. But that all of these things are happening simultaneously brings us back to the larger context. What is this state that, on the one hand, is is relentlessly bombing people in Gaza? And by the way, again, another thing about the way in which this uh, this conflict is covered by the by the mainstream corporate media is that G Gaza is portrayed as though it's like this you know a country or something with a government that we often hear the Hamas governed Gaza Strip Hamas is not a, I mean they can say what they want in terms of international law the Gaza Strip like the West Bank and East Jerusalem is occupied territory and the occupying power as in, as recognized by the UN Security Council countless times is the state of Israel when the Israelis are bombing Gaza they're not bombing it's not like the US bombing Canada it's 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 bombing people for whom it is legally accountable under the provisions of international humanitarian law right so this that's another really big part of it so on the one hand this state is relentlessly bombing people for whom it is responsible for whose welfare as the occupying power it is it is it is single-handedly responsible on the other hand at home it's not just armed mobs of armed or unarmed mobs of of Jewish zealots who are terrorizing Palestinian residents in their homes within the pre-67 borders and in the occupied territories but those those are those gangs of hooligans are also assisted and often abetted by uh the the security apparatuses of the state right so it's the state combined with uh, gangs of, of of racist hooligans in inside this inside cities like Yaffa and Haifa and Lid and right. so forth and Akka up in the north. Uh, so it's like what you see is this full spectrum apartheid, basically, is what it comes down to. And it you know it's as awful as it is. It also renders a certain kind of clarity 
we can now understand what's happening. We look at this picture and we see what this state is doing and to whom it's doing it and what, what's at stake here. What's happening is and the, 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 the big picture becomes clearer to see, of course, if you're willing to see the big picture, which, as we said, the, most of the main, mainstream media isn't you know, quite so interested in seeing the big picture in the context and the history and so forth. The term full spectrum apartheid really struck me. Um, what about the difference between the Trump administration and the Biden administration? Joe Biden restored $325 million in aid for Palestinians. So I suppose uh, in the very margins, there might be a difference between these two presidents. And, and what one of the achievements, the stunning, stellar, shining achievements of the Trump administration's foreign policy was the 2020 Abraham Accord where it basically got uh, Gulf states like the United Arab Emirates to, you know, bribe them to recognize Israel in exchange for some promise of weapon sales. Would that be the extent of the difference between the two uh, administrations here in the U.S.? I mean, of course, I mean, it's only been a way, few months for Biden. I mean, in a way. So part of what's interesting about, of course, the Trump administration, you know, first and foremost, the first thing we have to say about the Trump administration is it all comes down to Trump. The personality. Yeah. Like yeah. Trump, I don't honestly, I don't think he cares one way or the other what happens. And, I mean, and wasn't actually, Jared Kushner supposed to have solved the whole thing? And Jared Kushner <laughs> supposed to have solved the thing. So the point is, Trump kind of, he does, I don't think he just gave it all to Jared and said he figured this out. And of course, Kushner neither wanted to nor, nor has the any ability to figure things out. So he, so of course, he didn't figure things out. Biden was, so what Biden represents is a kind of return to an, you know, same old, same old that we've seen in the U.S. Uh, going back to, let's say, the 1980s and 1990s. It's like we've seen this narrative before. We urge restraint on all sides and it's not helpful. And so like, what can we do? We're just asking our, our friends not to be quite so belligerent and so forth without using the word belligerent. Um, and it's like, but the world has changed. And, and one thing that's changed, and you kind of touched on this in one of your earlier questions, is that the domestic atmosphere in the U.S. is not what it once was. First of all, we in the U.S. have a much greater clarity about the whole question of racial justice than we did, let's say, two years ago, let alone 10 years ago. Mm. The, 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 the relationship between police violence in our, in our cities here in the U.S. and this external colonial violence overseas in, in Palestine, but not just Palestine, has been, like, people are aware of these kinds of connections. People know, I think more people know anyway, that it's the Israelis that have been training are U.S. police forces, which is one reason why George Floyd had his, you know, the guy, the guy had his, his knee on George Floyd's neck. That's an Israeli tactic. If you watch any of the footage coming out of the West Bank these days, you'll see, or Jerusalem, you'll see exactly the same tactic. That's not a coincidence. That's something that's taught. So there's an awareness among more and more and more Americans about this whole question of racial justice and, and police violence and military violence and so forth. So it's not like we're not back in the night. Like Biden is in some kind of weird, maybe because he's kind of strange. I don't know. But anyway, he's in some kind of time warp that he's in the 1980s, like Joe Biden of the 1980s when he was in the Senate in the 80s. And that's not the world we're in. So he's acting as though nothing has changed. But in fact, things have changed. The, the younger part and the more uh, progressive you know, parts of the Democratic Party are not where they were in the 1980s. I mean, for example, when you see people in Congress literally using the words apartheid to describe what's happening, when you see John Oliver on a comedy show on TV using the word apartheid to describe what's happening, that wasn't happening in the 1980s and 90s. Some of us were using the word apartheid, but it was, let's say, not in the halls of power, you know, to put it mildly, right? Not on, you know, mainstream, right. you know, shows like the comedy channel and so forth. So it's kind of extraordinary in that sense that, that there's a, there's a, there's a, there's a shift taking place in American 
public understanding of what's happening and in, and in our role as Americans in, in overseas adventurism and colonialism and so forth. And so we're not in the 1980s time warp that Joe Biden and his secretary of state seem to be in or his secretary and in, in his, sorry, his ambassador to the United Nations is also green stamping all the stuff that these ladies are doing. So I think at some point, uh, even the political elites, people like Biden in the, in, you know, in the US are gonna catch up with the fact that the, 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 a lot of the base of the Democratic Party is shifting very rapidly, especially on this particular question. And uh, that's going to that's going to sort of I think personally, that's going to help set the stage for future uh, for, for po positive moves in the future as these younger, uh, more progressive Democrats gradually become more, you know, as they rise up through the ranks of the Democratic Party and kind of as we see the kind of retirement of the fading away of the kind of more same old, same old Nancy Pelosi and Joe Biden and, and uh, and, and people like that who are just doing the same things they were doing 20 or 30 years ago when the world itself and the U.S. itself has changed very uh, dramatically since then. Well, sorry, Magdisi, I want to thank you so much for joining us today. We'll post a link to your Nation magazine article from our website. Thanks and good luck. My pleasure. My guest has been Sari Makdisi, a professor of English and Comparative Literature at UCLA. I'm Sonali Kolhatkar. We're online at risingupwithsonali.com, where you can sign up for our newsletter, find our audio podcast on iTunes and Spotify.